This is American Crimes. I am your host, Patrick Michael, and once again, we find ourselves in America, where almost anything can happen. From your dreams coming true, to nightmares becoming real. Welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have a very special case because this is very close to home. I am not from the southern por- portion of Indiana, but I do live in Indiana in itself, and this episode is entirely based in Indianapolis, Indiana. As a matter of fact, it's right outside of Indianapolis and is known as Westfield. And this is a pretty big case. This is a big case. People know of this person who committed this crime. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end to this. Uh, There was some speculation in some other directions as well throughout this whole case. And we're going to look at all that. This is a very strange one, man. We have not looked at anything that had this much detail since I started this show. But we're going to be doing that today, man. I'm looking forward to it, and you guys should be as well. So welcome once again. As always, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for checking out the other stuff, man. If you guys are listening to this podcast on your iPhone, pop over to that purple icon and leave us a five-star review. You know, just say something, man, anything you want. You know, it doesn't have to be pertaining to the show, but, you know, five stars. It really does help the small guys such as us get somewhere, you know, get more people listening to the show, and ultimately me making more content uh, faster, if you will. But uh, yeah, I'm excited about this case, man. I didn't know much about this person at all. I honestly had no idea about this person, and I'm pretty invested, you know, into the the grim when it comes to like serial killers and that genre of the evil, I guess you'd say. And I've never heard of this guy, you know. And I honestly, because I live in Indiana, you'd think that I'd have a little bit more of a clue to who this person was. But nope, no idea, no clue. No idea. And uh, here we are, looking into them right now. But we're going to first, before all this begins, man, we have to look at Indianapolis in itself during the rise of these crimes. What were the crime crime rates like? You know, what was it like? What was going on in, in Indiana at that time? Indian, in Indianapolis, to be specific. What was happening? You know, was there a lot of crime? Was this uh, something that seemed... Uh, Inevitable, You know, were there there multiple people doing things such as this at that time? We're going to find out right now, man. Let's look into Indiana and the crime rates during 1996. Okay, so first of all, in 1996, I was eight years old. So it's kind of surprising. Obviously, I wasn't paying attention to the news when this situation brought itself uh, forward. But guaranteed that, you know, that it was on the news at the time, you know, when I was alive. And I've never heard of this guy. And I'm surprised, you know, even nobody in my family has made mention of him. Like, hey, you know, this is a serial killer from Indiana. But uh, either way, the population in 1996 in Indiana was actually 5.8 million. And uh, as far as violent crimes, this is the index uh, based per 100,000. And the violent crimes, there's 31,366. Property crimes, 231,376. There was 420 murders. 
100, uh, I'm sorry, 1,992 rape, 7,249 robberies, 21,705 aggravated assault, 45,000 burglaries, 160,000 larceny theft, and, you know, some obvious uh, vehicle thefts there as well. But overall, that's just 1996. Now, coming into this year or as recent as we, we could possibly find on areavibes.com, it says um, total crime is 50,034. And this is going closer to uh, Indianapolis. It's 5,746 total crime. You got 17.9 murders. That's per 100,000 people. Uh, rape, 76.7. Robbery, 400.2. Assault, 839. Violent crime, 1,334. So, is it super violent? You know, when I was looking at the numbers in comparison, you know, by area or by year, basically, which is, you know, 1996, 97, 98, you know, some of the numbers were kind of high, some of them were low, but they were all pretty close. Is that an excuse for these situations happening? Of course not. But they were happening nonetheless. And they took place in this area, in this vicinity, which, you know, you guys have to keep in mind, this is a big city. You know, this is a, a one of the biggest city in Indiana. And these things took place. And I've lived in Indiana my whole life, and I've never heard of it. And we're here figuring it out right now. This is, a, this is obviously an American crime, you know. And I'm very curious about it. The crimes themselves aren't super strange, and that's not the whole point, but it's just the crimes themselves that I, you know, I would imagine not a lot of people have spoke about. And we're gonna we're talking about it right here, you know. Who knew that Indiana had uh, a level of killer such as this, and many of them. But those are the crime rates, man. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about these crimes, and let's talk about this person specifically. <laughs> Now, the reason that Indiana has became the subject of today's episode is because of a young man known as Herbert Baumeister. Herbert Richard Baumeister was actually born April 7, 1947, to Dr. Herbert E. and Elizabeth Baumeister in Butler, Tarkington, Indianapolis. What the fuck is that? I've never heard of that place. Butler, Tarkington? There's a hyphen. I've I've never heard of this place whatsoever. Uh, but it's obviously a town in Indianapolis, and that's probably why. But uh, Baumeister was the oldest of four children. So he has three other siblings, if that wasn't obvious. So he has three other siblings, which makes you know, th- the reason I say that is it makes you curious what, what happened to the other kids. Uh, Dr. Baumeister was a successful anesthesiologist, and soon after the last child was born, the family moved to the affluent area of northern Indianapolis called Washington Township. So, you know, the family had money. Uh, By all accounts, young Herbert had a normal childhood. When he reaches adolescence, he changed. Herbert began to obsess on things that were vile and disgusting. He developed a macabre sense of humor and appeared to lose his ability to judge right from wrong. Rumors circulated about him urinating on his teacher's desk. Now, that takes some gumption. You know, number one, you got to pull your penis out in front of other students. I would assume that the class was full, and then you also have to have the, you know, the literal balls to piss on the desk. Uh, one time he pocketed a dead crow that he had found on the side of the road, and he placed it in his teacher's desk. 
what, what was wrong with his teacher? You know, what, what, you know, ultimately made him do these things? You know, was the teacher antagonizing him? Uh, his peers began uh, distancing themselves from him. Uh, leery of being associated with his strange, morbid behavior. In class, Baumeister uh, was often disruptive and volatile. His teachers reached out to his parents for help. This is all coming from thought.com. Thoughtco.com. Sorry. Uh, the Baumeisters had also noticed an unusual change in their eldest son. So now his older brother has an issue going on. So there we go. We're getting some answers. <laughs> Dr. Baumeister sent, uh, sent him for a series of tests and med uh, medical evaluations. The final diagnosis was that Herber was schizophrenic and suffered from multiple personality disorder. Well, that's fucking awful. That's a terrible combination. Uh, what was done to help the boy is unclear, but it appeared that the Baumeisters decided not to seek treatment. It's probably for a good reason considering the options, especially in 1996. Uh, during the 1960s, or, I'm sorry, 1996, this, Herbert was a grown man. When he was a child, in the uh, 1960s, electroconvulsive therapy was the most common treatment for schizophrenia, which, if you guys don't, do not know what that is, it's where they use, you know, they strap you down and they put the <laughs> the thing on your head. Sorry to laugh, but it just seems so vintage. And they, they shock you m many times for a certain amount of times over time. Does that make sense? Uh, those inflicted with the disease were often institutional, institutionalized, and you guys have seen Geraldo Rivera and, you know, several of those old medical asylums, you know, being filled with these patients who have pretty much, you know, just been left there and not taken care of by anybody. Uh, it was also accepted practice to uh, shock unruly patients several times a day not with any hope of curing them, you know, obviously you guys have heard of this before, uh, but to make them more mean, uh, manageable for hospital staff, they would purposely shock them. It wasn't until the mid-1970s that the drug therapy replacement, uh, re sorry, drug therapy replaced ECTs uh, because it was obviously more humane and produced better results. A lot of the patients taking the drug therapy could leave the hospital environment and lead fairly normal lives. You know, they're not being fucking shocked uh, in their brain constantly right that obviously makes more sense it's, it seems they'd be able to live a better life if they're not being fucking shocked you know their brain's not being shocked with however many volts you know uh, whether or not Baumeister actually ever received drug therapy is not known so his multi-personal uh, you know his several personalities on top of being schizophrenic possibly went untreated and that is not good and even though the treatment was shock therapy it's not you know to go untreated could be worse i mean i don't know it's hard to say i guess this is kind of the answers here you know we're not listening to american crimes and doing american crimes because something good happened right this doesn't make sense so obviously herbert had some issues continuing his childhood and growing up and uh while he was in public high school somehow he ma uh, was managing to maintain his grades but completely failing socially you know, he was probably super introverted because he had a lot of voices going on. People talking to him, things going on that he couldn't explain to anybody else. He probably assumed that it was only an issue inside of him that he couldn't, you know, verbally express to somebody who doesn't have the same situation. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a very isolating world. I can only imagine. 
Uh, the school's extracurricular energy was focused on sports, and the members of the football team and their friends were the most popular clique, as goes in most public schools. Uh, Baumeister was in awe of this tight group and continually tried to gain their acceptance, but he was repeatedly rejected. For him, it was all or nothing. Either he would be accepted into the group or be alone. Now, that's, that's just a weird situation to put yourself in. I mean, most kids go through that situation, but to have, you know, it be one or the other, you know, that's the finality of it all, that's not good. You know, where it's like you'd rather be alone if you can't be with the most popular kids. Like, it's, I don't know, I always had the notion of, like, fuck the popular kids. I'm going to do, I'm going to be myself regardless. People want to be my friend, they can, but I'm not going to, you know, purposely isolate myself. Uh, he did finish his final year in high school in complete solitude, you know, which is not a way to go. But in 1965, Baumeister uh, attended Indiana University. So he's a, you know, he's a Hoosier, I guess, if he graduated, you know. <laughs> Who's to say? We, won't, we You know, I can't tell you yet. But, uh, you know, either way, a Hoosier, a Hoosier nonetheless, because that's what they fucking call us here in this state. But, yeah, he went to that college. You know, he got in there in Bloomington. Again, he dealt, though, with being the outcast because of his strange behavior. As you could assume, from a schizophrenic with multiple personality disorder. You know, you can only assume. Uh, he dropped out after his first semester. Bada boom. <laughs> so, yeah, he didn't graduate, but nonetheless, he is born in Indiana. So, he's a Hoosier, nonetheless. Uh, pressured by his father, he returned in 1967 to study anatomy, but then he dropped out again before the semester was over, so he's constantly going back. Uh, by this time, being at IU was, a, was not a total loss. Uh, before dropping out, he met Juliana Sater, S-A-I-T-E-R. Uh, she was a high school journalism teacher and part-time IU student. Uh, Herbert and Juliana began dating and found that they had a lot in common. Besides being politically aligned with their extremely conserv conservative ideology, they also shared an entrepreneurial spirit and dreamed of one day owning their own business. So in 1971, they married. But six months into the marriage, for unknown reasons, Baumeister's father had Herbert committed to a mental institution where he would stay for two months. That's got to be a weird situation, right? Did he think that he was crazy for marrying this girl? Or did the means finally happen where he could... I don't know, have him fixed, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Weird. But, uh, whatever happened did not ruin his marriage. You know, Juliana, uh, was in love with her husband and his odd behavior notwithstanding, you know, she was down to be with him regardless of the situation. And it's pretty weird that even, you know, at the age that I'm sure he was at this point in 1971, uh, he, he had to be a grown, grown adult to the point of where his dad shouldn't be able to voluntarily push him into a mental hospital. But back then, you know, you could imagine how easily that easy that was. Nowadays they're just getting arrested, you know, the crazy people. They're having them thrown in jail and that's not that's not helping you, right? Uh Baumeister's father managed to pull strings and actually got Herbert a job as a copy boy at the Indianapolis Star newspaper. This dude is doing some shit, man. He's making a name for himself. Uh the job entitled Running News Reports uh, news reporters copy from one desk to another and uh, other errands, of course, you know. It's an interesting job, something I'd be willing to do because you get to, uh, you know, circulate. You get to talk to a bunch of different type of people all the time, you know. It was a low-level position, but Baumeister dove into it, eager to start a new career. 
you know, just like I was saying, it'd be interesting for a person who's, you know, looking to, I can't think of the word right now, but, you know, just looking to make friends, I guess you'd say, uh, acquaintances, people that you could just be like, hey, man, you know, maybe I'll see you on the outside, whatever the hell the situation may be, because work environments can all be definitely strange, but being the guy that's going from desk to desk, you can only imagine that you're talking to everybody for a certain amount of time, if you're that type of guy, but this guy's, you know, multi-personality, multiple personality, and schizophrenic, so, yeah, maybe he's fine with this situation, like I said, talking to a bunch of different people, it's, I don't know, it might put you on easier planes, I guess, you know, in your head, where you can kind of make sense of it, because you are talking to all these people in real life, making different connections, but either way, uh, unfortunately, though, his efforts to constantly gain positive feedback from the top brass uh, actually became irritating, he obsessed on ways to fit in with his co-workers and bosses, but he never succeeded. Uh, he soured and unable to handle his nobody status, as quoted. Uh, he eventually left a position for a job at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. So going from, you know, that's pretty nice, man, to start at a newspaper and then to go to the DMV, you know, which that's hell, regardless of being a customer. But uh, being uh, an employee there can't be much better. Uh, Baumeister began his new entry-level job at the BMV with an entirely different attitude. At the newspaper, his demeanor was childlike and over-eager. Uh, he was displaying, you know, hurt feelings, like people were picking on him when his expectations for recognition were not met. Uh, recognition, excuse me. Uh, but that was not the case at the BMV. There, he immediately came off as bossy and overly aggressive. Uh, he would lash out at them for no reason, at his other co-workers, it was as if he was playing that role emulating, you know, what he perceived as being a good su superior, you know, uh, somebody who would be a boss. And that's not how it works, man. <laughs> Anybody who knows how to manage people or has managed people before, you know that that's not the case. It takes, it's a different type of thing. It's damn near a friendship, but you have to have that, that line in the friendship that says, you know, I will still scold your ass. You will still do a good job for me. You know what I mean? Uh, Baumeister was labeled as an oddball during this uh, stint at the BMV. Not only was his behavior erratic, but his sense of property, uh, propriety, excuse me, was at times way off. Uh, one year, he sent a Christmas card to everyone he worked with with a picture of himself with another man, uh, both dressed in holiday drag. Uh, back in the early 70s, few saw the humor in such a card. You know, people weren't getting this. Uh, they raised an eyebrow and talked around the water cooler as to what, you know, Baumeister, Baumeister happened to be a closet homosexual and a nutcase. Uh, after working at the Bureau for 10 years, uh, despite Herbert's poor relationship with his, you know, co-workers, he was recognized for being an intelligent go-getter that produced results. He was rewarded, rewarded with the promotion to a program director. In uh, 1985, within a year of the promotion, though, he had so yearned for, he was terminated after he urinated on a letter addressed to the governor of Indiana, Robert D. Orr. Like, what the fuck is his deal with pissing on stuff? It's weird, right? Like, why is that your go-to move? You don't think that... Is he, like, assuming that people aren't going to know that he peed on it? Like, oh, here's this thing, and it's sopping wet. He just lays it down and send it away. Go for it. It'll, it's fine. It's not wet at all. Uh, the act of peeing on this, you know, Governor Robert D. Orr's uh, letter put the rest to all the rumors, of course, because people, you know, found out who was responsible for the urine that was found on the manager's desk a month earlier. 
So he's he's going from peeing on a teacher's desk in school to then peeing on, you know, a letter to the governor as well as the manager's desk earlier. You know, he worked at this job for 10 years and people are like, who the fuck's pissed? Who pissed on my desk every day? He's got to go in there like this fucking stinks in here, man. You should really get a new get new desk. It's like, we don't have the budget. We just don't have the budget. Can't do it. Got to keep the P desk. Uh, nine years into his marriage, he and Julia started a family. Uh, Marie was born in 1979. Eric was born in 1981. And Emily in 1984. Before Herbert lost his job at the BMV, themes, things seemed to be going well. So Juliana quit her job to become a full-time mother. But she had to return to work, obviously, when her husband couldn't find steady work. As a temporary stay-at-home dad, Herbert proved to be a caring and loving father to his children. But being jobless left him with too much time on his hands. And unknown to Julia, he began drinking a lot and hanging out at gay bars. So this is where it kind of gets interesting. You see what I'm saying? Because there's the crimes are obviously coming up. We're getting into those. But before we get into those, there's a lot of other things that's in this man's life that uh, are pretty interesting and kind of, uh, I would say important for the history i guess of indiana itself just because what you know this person before i don't know it's hard to say you know this it's it's stupid it sucks regardless you know the whole situation but he was arrested in september of 1985 Uh, he received a slap on the hand though being charged with a hit and run accident while driving uh drunk six months later he was charged with stealing a friend's car and conspiracy to commit theft but he managed to beat those charges as well like what kind of lawyer lawyer does this guy got Uh, He bounced around from different jobs until he began working at a thrift shop. At first, he didn't like the job and considered it below him, but then he saw that it was a potential moneymaker. Over the next several years, he focused on learning the business. It was during this time that his father died. Uh, What impact that event had on Herbert is unknown. So he was one of those guys where uh, a situation like that happens and they don't really, you know, they have no emotional take to it but in uh, 1988 Baumeister borrowed $4,000 from his mom and he and Julia opened a thrift store which they named Save-A-Lot S-A-V hyphen A hyphen L-O-T not like the grocery store that most of us know in Indiana that's S-A-V-E not the same guy I looked into it believe me uh, they stocked it with uh, gently used quality clothing, furniture, and other used items. Percentage of the store's profits went to the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis. So he's doing stuff for the community. That's what I'm saying. Like, I didn't expect these things to be going on, honestly, uh, behind the scenes. But nobody does, right? Uh, it quickly grew in popularity. Business was booming. It showed such a strong profit in the first year that Baumeister decided to open a second store. Within three years, the couple, who had until they lived paycheck to paycheck, who had until then only lived paycheck to paycheck, were actually rich. So in 1991, the Baumeisters moved to their dream home. You know, like they, you know, Baumeister Herbert was already coming off of a, you know, a pretty decent living because of his dad. I'm sure he had to have gotten some money there because he got four grand from his mom. So there had to have been money in the house after the dad died because what was he doing? You know, anesthesiologist right? He had to have some sort of money. I know they don't make crazy money, but back then they had to make at least better money than now. Had to be a higher demand. Uh, their dr- this dream house was actually an 18-acre horse ranch, and it was called Fox Hollow Farms. 
I'm sure you've heard that before. That was the only thing that kind of clicked to me because I feel like I remember an episode of like Ghost Adventures where they, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. But either way, uh, it's located in Westfield area. It's outside of uh, Indianapolis and Hamilton County, Indiana. Their their home was, this is a huge home. It's a million dollar semi-mansion. All the bells and whistles, you know what I mean, including a riding stable and an indoor pool. Uh, remarkably, Baumeister had uh, turned into a well-respected man. He was seen as a successful businessman, a family man who gave to charities. What was not so ideal was the stress that came with the couple having to work so closely together each day. From the start of the business, Herbert treated Juliana like an employee and would often yell at her for no reason. To keep the peace, she would take a back seat to whatever business decisions that he had made. But it took a toll on the marriage. Unknown to outsiders, the couple would argue and split up on and off over the next several years. Uh, the Save-A-Lot stores had a reputation for being clean and organized, but the opposite could be said about the way the Baumeisters kept their new home. The grounds that had always been meticulously maintained became overgrown with weeds. The inside of the home was neglected. The rooms were a mess. You know, it was obvious to the visitors that housekeeping was low priority for the couple. The area that the Baumeisters seemed to care about was the pool house. He kept the wet bar stocked. He filled the area with copious decor, including mannequins, that he dressed and placed around to give the appearance that a lavish pool party was going on. So let me paint this picture, guys. He's got his this crazy pool outside, and he decides to buy mannequins and set them up all around this pool to make it seem as if there's real people out there having a party. Like, that's fucking sinister. Uh, the rest of the house displayed turmoil of marriage and to escape Juliana and the three children would stay with Herbert's mother-in-law at Lake Wawasee uh, condominium Baumeister would almost always stay behind to run the stores or so he told his wife in 1994 the Baumeister's son 13 year old Eric was playing in a wooded area behind their home when he found a human skeleton it was partially buried he showed the grizzly find to Juliana who in return showed it to Herbert he told her that his father had used skeletons in his research and that after finding it while the cleaning, cleaning the garage, he had to take it out to the backyard and bury it. Incredibly, Juliana believed her husband's weird fucking answer. And that is where we're going to get into his crimes. It seems only right. Together we bring you the 727 Podcast. This podcast is dedicated to making you laugh at the world of conspiracies. Some episodes we look at two real conspiracies. Others, we make up two of our own. With loads of fun and laughs. You'd only be hurting yourself by not listening to our show. Find 727 on your favorite podcast app. Or simply visit dramacityproductions.com slash seven. Thanks for listening. And, and always, always stay, stay woke. woke. too long after the second store had opened, the businesses began to lose money and never stopped losing money. 
Baumeister began drinking during the day, and he would return to the stores drunk and act crazy to the customers' employees. Customers and employees, uh, the stores went from being orderly to looking like a dump. At night, uh, Juliana did not know that Baumeister was cruising gay bars, and then he would return home and retreat to the pool house, where he would spend hours whimpering and crying like a child about the dying business. So that's already got to be suspicious in itself, right? Why is he in there crying over just the business itself? That's That can't be just what you're crying over. Uh, Juliana was exhausted from worry. At this point, uh, the bills had been piling up, and her husband was acting as strange as he possibly could at this point. You know, things are only getting weirder. While the Baumeisters were actually busy trying to fix their failing business and marriage, there was a major murder investigation going on in Indianapolis. Virgil Vandegraaff was a highly respected retired Marion County Sheriff who in 1977 opened Vandegraaff and Associates Incorporated. It was a private investigation firm in Indianapolis which specialized in uh, missing person cases. So in June of 1994, Vandegraaff was contacted by the mother of a 28-year-old Alan uh, Broussard. Uh, She was said that he had went missing. And the last time that she saw him, he was headed out to meet his partner at a popular gay bar called Brothers. And he had never returned home. Uh, Almost a week later, Vandegraaff received a call from another distraught mother about the missing son in July. Uh, Roger Goodlay, uh, I think Goodlett, maybe. G-O-O-D-L-E-T, Goodlett. Yeah, sure. He's 32. He left his parents' home out for the evening. He was headed to a gay bar in downtown Indianapolis, but he never made it there. Both Poussard and Goodlet, uh, Goodlet, sorry, uh, shared similar lifestyles that looked like one another and were near the same age and seemed to vanish around the same gay bar. Pretty much the same route. So suspicions were up, man. Uh, Vandegraaff made up missing posters and distributed them to the bars around the city. Uh, in search for the clues, the family and friends of the young men were interviewed, as were several customers of the bars. Uh, the only real clue that uh, Vandegraaff learned was that Goodlett was last seen willingly getting into a blue car with Ohio plates. He also received a call from a publisher of a gay magazine who wanted to make Vandegraaff aware that there had been multiple cases of gay men disappearing in Indianapolis over the last few years. So a bunch of people knew this, not the police. Uh, he was convinced that they were dealing with a serial killer, so Vandegraaff went to the Indianapolis Police Department with his suspicions. Unfortunately, searching for the disappearing gay men was apparently a low priority. Most of the investigators believe more than likely the men had moved out of the area without their, telling their families and f- uh, freely living their lifestyles. Uh, Vandegraaff also learned about an ongoing investigation into multiple murders of gay men in Ohio. The murders began in 1989 and ended in mid-1990. The bodies were found dumped alongside uh, Interstate 70, and that's when it was dubbed the I-70 murders in the newspapers. Four of the victims had been from Indianapolis. Now, Brian Smart is a name that you're going to know pretty well because he plays a big part in this whole thing. Uh, within weeks of Vandegraaff posting the missing posters, he was contacted by Tony Harris. It's a fake name. Uh, he had said that he was certain that he had spent time with the person responsible for the Roger Goodlett's disappearance. He had also said that he had gone to the police and the FBI, but they pretty much threw the information you know, in, in the trash and didn't do anything with it. 
Now, Vandegraaff set up a meeting, and in a series of interviews that followed, a bizarre story started to unfold. According to Harris, he was at a gay club when he noticed a man who seemed to be overly captivated by the missing person posters of his friend, Roger Goodlett. As he continued to watch the man, there was something in his eyes that convinced him that the man knew something about his friend's disappearance. So to try to learn more, he introduced himself, and the man said his name was Brian Smart, and that he was a landscaper from Ohio. Now, when Harris tried to bring up Goodlett, Smart would become evasive and change the subject, as one does. Uh, as the evening progresses, Smart invited Harris to join him for a swim at the house where he said he was temporarily living. He said he was doing landscaping for the new owners who were away, and Harris had agreed to go into Smart's Buick, which had the Ohio plates. Harris was not familiar with northern Indi Indianapolis, so he was unable to say where the location of the house was. He was able to describe the area as having horse ranches and large homes. He also described a split rail fence and a sign that he could partially see that read farm something. You know, Fox Hollow Farm. Uh, the sign was in the front of the driveway that Smart had turned onto, so seems more than likely it is uh, our good friend uh, Herb Baumeister's house. Harris went on to describe the large Tudor home that Smart had entered from a side. Uh, he described the interior of the home being congested with a lot of furniture and boxes. He followed Smart through the house and out down some steps to the bar and pool area that had mannequins set up around the pool. And he was offered a drink, but he was he had turned it down for obvious reasons, you know, as a smart person would. Uh, smart excused himself. You know, Brian Smart excuses himself at this point. And when he returned, he was a lot more talkative, so he probably went and did a bunch of cocaine. Uh, at some point, Smart brought up uh, autoerotic asphyxiation and asked, pretty much asked Harris to do it with him. And Harris went along and choked Smart with a hose while he masturbated. That's a weird thing to just, I don't know. Like, hey man, you mind choking me with this fucking hose real quick while I jerk off? Thanks. Uh, that's just, I don't know. Smart then said that it was his turn to do it to Harris, and again Harris went along, and as Smart began choking him, it became, so now they're just trading places. Uh, he, you know, Smart wasn't going to let go. Harris pretended to pass out, and then Smart released the hose, and when Harris opened his eyes, Smart became rattled and said that he was scared because Harris had passed out. So he's playing it off like, oh, I thought I killed you. Just kidding, I, I thought you just passed out and it worried me. Anyways, Harris was considered uh, considerably larger than Smart, which was probably the only reason that he had survived. He only refused drinks earlier in the evening that Smart had prepared, so he wasn't drunk. He had refused the drinks, so he wasn't inebriated in any way, so that made it easier for him to survive, I guess. Uh, to find out more about Brian Smart, though, Vandegraaff arranged to have Harris and Smart followed when they met the second time. But of course, Brian Smart didn't show up. Uh, believing the Harris story actually had merit, Vandegraaff turned again to the police, but this time he contacted Mary Wilson. She was a detective who had worked in missing persons, and one that Vandegraaff respected and actually trusted. She drove Harris to the wealthy areas outside Indianapolis on the chance that he might recognize the house that Smart had took him to, but of course they turn up empty. It was a year later that Harris had, would meet up with Smart again, they happened to show up at the same bar one night, and Harris was able to get Smart's license plate number. He gave him the, inf the information to Mary Wilson this time, and she ran a check, and the license plate was a match, but not to Brian Smart, but to Herbert Baumeister, the wealthy owner of the Save-A-Lot. As he discovered more about Baumeister, she agreed that Vandegraaff, with Vandegraaff, 
and Tony Harris had narrowly escaped becoming a victim of a serial killer. So this guy survives. You know, this guy survives, you know, nearly being killed by a serial killer. How crazy. You know, was he crying in this pool shed because he was killing people or because, you know, his his shop was failing? Clearly he didn't care about the damn shop. Come on. You know, why would it fail? You know, you guys are coming up right when you should be coming up and you're already getting rich. Doesn't make sense. Uh, Detective Wilson decided on a direct approach and actually went to Baumeister's store. She had told him that he was a suspect in an investigation into several missing men. She requested that he allow investigators to search his home. And at that point, he refused and told her that in the future, she should go through his lawyer. So the guy's got lawyers, man. He's already, like I already said, he's been arrested before and not charged. You know, got off pretty much scot-free. Slap on the wrist. Uh, Wilson then went to Juliana and told her the same thing. And she had told her husband uh, that she had told her husband, hoping to get her to agree to search the property. Juliana, although shocked by what she was hearing, also firmly refused. Like, what a fool. Uh, Wilson then tried to get Hamilton County officials to issue a search warrant, but they refused. They, fe they felt that there was not enough conclusive evidence to warrant, you know, to give the warrant. <laughs> Herbert Baumeister then appeared to go through an emotional breakdown over the next several months. By June, Julian, uh, Juliana excuse me, had reached her limit. The Children's Bureau canceled the contract with the Save-A-Lot stores, and she was facing bankruptcy. The fairy, t the fairy tale fog that she had been living began to lift, as did her loyalty to the husband. Uh, what also left her mind, since the first time they spoke to Detective Wilson, was the haunting image of the skeleton that her son had discovered two years earlier. So at this point, Juliana makes a decision to file for divorce and then tell Mary Wilson about the skeleton. She was also going to let the detective search the property, finally. Uh, Herbert and his son, Eric were visiting uh, Herbert's mother at Lake Wawasee at this time, so it was perfect time to get these people over there to check the yard. So on June 24, 1996, Wilson and three Hamilton County officers walked into the grassy area just feet from the patio area of the Baumeister home. As their eyes began to focus, they could clearly see what appeared to be small rocks and pebbles all across the backyard where the Baumeister's children had played were actually bone fragments. Ew, ew, right? When my kids playing around no fucking bones, are you kidding me? Uh, Wilson knew that it would turn out to be human bones already, but the Hamilton County offices, officers were actually uncertain. Fortunately, though, in less than a day, Wilson got confirmation from forensics. The rocks were actually fragments of bones. Uh, the following day, police and firemen swarmed the property and began excavation. Bones were found everywhere. Even in the fucking neighbor's yard. Like, how pissed would you be? You know? Living next to a serial killer and he's throwing fucking, you know, bones from people over, you know, over your fence. That's just how I picture it. Uh, in a matter of days, 5,500 bones and teeth were found in the backyard. You know, the average human only has, what, 32 teeth? Give or take? Right? How many bodies is that? That's a lot. Uh, in search of the rest of the property... There was more bones by the time the excavation was complete. It was estimated that the bones were from 11 men. However, only four victims could be identified. That's terrible. And they were actually Roger Allen Goodlett, uh, Stephen Hale, Richard Hamilton, and Manuel uh, Resendez. Uh, Richard Hamilton was actually only 20 years old. 
That's crazy. I mean, it's crazy for all the guys, but, you know, he was just barely an adult. Uh, when the police actually discovered the, ba- uh, from the bone fragments in the backyard, Juliana began to panic. She feared for the safety of her son, Eric, who was the, with Baumeister. Uh, the authorities also felt, you know, kind of weary of the situation. So Herbert and Juliana were already in the beginning of the, this divorce at this point. It was decided that before police discoveries at the Baumeisters hit the news, Herbert would be served with custody papers demanding Eric's return to Juliana. Thankfully, when when Baumeister was served with the papers, he turned Eric over without incident, figuring that it was just a legal maneuver from Juliana. Now, once the news of the bones began being uncovered, you know, from the, you know, it was actually put on the news and it was being broadcasted, basically, you know, Baumeister had actually taken off. You know, it was not until July 3rd that his whereabouts would be known, so he was gone for quite some time. Uh, his body was actually discovered inside of his car. He uh, apparently shot himself, and uh, he was actually parked in Pinery Park, Ontario. So he actually went to a whole other country, you know, climbed, you know, went over uh, the borders there and uh, killed himself in Canada, of all places. You know what I mean? Like a sad thing to happen because Canadians are all relatively nice, but you got to get this crazy man from Indiana crossing your borders and killing himself, you know, on your land. It's crazy. Uh, He actually wrote a three-page suicide note uh, explaining his reasons for taking his life. They were actually due to his problems with the business and his fucking failing marriage. There was no mention of the murdered victims scattered in his backyard. That's what makes you shitty. Like, are you kidding me, dude? You're going to kill yourself. You're going to write three pages of why you're killing yourself, but you're not going to make mention of the fact that you killed other people. Like, that's selfish as fuck. Uh, Juliana Baumeister actually helped investigators of Ohio murders from the I-70 and pieced together they pieced together evidence that linked Baumeister to the I-70 murders. Receipts provided by Juliana show that Baumeister had traveled along I-70 during the times that the bodies were found dumped along the interstate. A sketch drawn from a description by an eyewitness who thought he saw the I-70 murderer look like Baumeister. Bodies had also stopped showing up along the interstate at the same time that Baumeister moved into Fox Hollow Farms, where he had plenty of land to hide bodies. So there you go, man. He had plenty of land there at Fox Hollow Farm. Now, what a fucking ridiculous ending. You know, nobody likes when that happens. You know, you want more justice, and that's not that's not the kind of justice we're looking for. You know, people will go to the death penalty and all those things and that, that type of deal, but you don't want that, man. At least not in the beginning. You want to find out what the purpose of it was, you know, where the other bodies are, where everyone else is, how many people he killed. And that's kind of the, it sucks having somebody, uh, you know, state claim to all these bodies and confess to it. But I think it's worse when they don't, you know, when you have no answers. There's no, you know, like I've said before, finality. Where's the ending? What's the finish point? Where are we now? You know, what does it all mean? Instead, you just escape, basically giving no answers to the reasons you did the things you did while you were here. And that's where it turns selfish. And it's obvious that this person was selfish regardless because only thinking about the business and the family marriage and not his victims that were so obvious considering his backyard was full of fucking bones. But, you know, nonetheless, it's what the, also what the public wants you to know in a certain degree. You know, 
uh, he took off. There was plenty of time, which is really strange that they didn't find him sooner. But then again, he did go into Canada, so maybe that was their their first mistake. The fact that they weren't able to, you know, get a hold. I don't understand why they just didn't arrest him at the same time that, you know, he turned over the sun. Why wouldn't you just have a stakeout or something, wait for him to show up then, get him? You know, you wouldn't have had to worry about him taking off. And you could have got some actual answers. Where's everyone else? You know, some justice for these families. Whatever, man. Crazy, though. Because that's Indianapolis, Indiana, man. That's an American crime, for sure. And that's a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's the weirdest part. Who expected that? You know, I didn't know that there was going to be... In a sense, it's still not ended for the victims' families. But there's an ending to the story, you know. In a sense, they kind of got justice because he's no longer here. You don't have to keep dealing with the idea of, oh, is he ever going to get out? You know, keep seeing his face in media and all that shit. You know, he's gone. But then again, so are their family members. You know, tragedy. But here we are. Talking about it, and hopefully you enjoyed it. If you guys enjoyed the story, you enjoy this podcast, please do not hesitate to get over to Apple Podcasts, iTunes. Leave a five-star review, man. It really helps the show grow, helps people notice us, and brings in more listeners, man. It's not about the ego. Not at all. You guys can say, you know, tell me your shoe size. Tell me what color your hair is. Tell me uh, your grandmother's name. I don't care. Anything, just five stars. Make sure you say something. They make you do that, man. That's what matters for some reason. It's it's strange. But, uh, yeah, thanks for listening, man. Don't forget to do that. You guys have been amazing. As always, I'm your host, Patrick Michael, and this has been American Crimes.